Uh, good morning, friends. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Michael Blake. Uh, I'm here to serve you with the gospel of Jesus for the, over the next coming time and before the next minister comes. And it's great to be with you. Uh, can we just pray before we look at this passage? Let's do that. Our Father, thank you that you have opened your heart and your word to us. Please give us understanding hearts and please give us minds that lay hold of your truth to us and put into practice in our lives. Please transform us, we pray, by your word. Amen. Uh, you will find uh, you were given an outline, I think, as you came uh, today. So you might find it very helpful to follow that. Uh, the purpose of the outline, you'll see there's a fair bit of space on it, uh, is to help you to jot down uh, points along the way that you might help to remember. Uh, I find as I'm getting older that the memory cells seem to need more work or they've got forgotten how to do it. Uh, and uh, so I need some help along the way. So you might find it helpful to, to jot down a few points along the way that will help you as you look over this matter. We're going to have a look at uh, this passage in Luke chapter 11, uh, 34 to 54 that was read for us. And uh, what we're seeing here, uh, the, where are we going with, with the, as we look at this passage today? What's the purpose? What's the point? I think we want to see the seriousness of sin is of such an enormous uh, importance that we choose to get rid of it. We want to see the importance of sin that it's so important that I want to get rid of it. All right? Let's have a look through at this passage. You see, sin does matter. We know sin matters because we cover it up. We hide it. How do you, I'm not asking, my questions are always rhetorical. You don't need to say anything, they're in your head, right? And that's easier. But how do you cover up sin in your life? We perhaps, I should say, I cover it up in various ways. Silence is one way. Just don't tell anyone. They might be asking. Just don't tell. Pretend I don't know. But there are many others. We find excuses. I can't help it. I was made this way. Everyone does it. I'm tired of the constant struggle. I just want the pain, the yearning, the desire to stop. I feel so much better if I had that. We cover up sin in so many ways, respectability becomes an invisible cloak hiding our sin. So we keep up our appearances, hoping that if others think we are good, then they may not guess that we have a problem. It's like the car park miracle. Uh, it's amazing how tensions and arguments can rapidly disappear and be replaced with smiles as we greet others in the car park. On the other hand, it's not always appropriate to share everything with everyone. But when we hide our guilt and shame it, it becomes very easy for us to use respectability as a cloak for sin. It's very easy to pretend that everything is okay, whereas meanwhile my thoughts, my schemes, my desires, my plans flow freely from my heart of sin. By and large, our society thinks something is only wrong if you get caught. We brush off sin by saying, oh, they're just having a bit of harmless fun. 
We use words to, like indulgence to describe food. Uh, in the end, we just want to live in a way that pleases me, ourselves. And in our, non, our non-Christian society believes that there is no afterlife. Uh, when you die, that's the end. And so there's no judgment. So it really doesn't matter what you do with your life now. Well, that's life today for us. What? But it was like that in Jesus' day. The times when Luke wrote, the things, the way we think, the way we behave is not new. It was much the same in his day. Reading the Gospels, we see many with false perceptions. I'm up to the second heading on the sheets if you're following them. Uh, False perceptions about Jesus, false perceptions about themselves. The Pharisees were were not part of the official religious leaders, the priests. They were not part of them. They were a different group. They were a group of ordinary people like you and I uh, who were committed themselves to the study of the scriptures and to follow the rules that were set down there. They took it very seriously. They made special efforts to obey the Old Testament laws to the finest detail. Luke mentions in verse 42 they gave a tenth even of the herbs that they were given. They religiously cleanse all their plates and cups, not for hygiene but as a religious rite. They washed to get rid of the moral dirt and dust from the worldly marketplace. Having such a high standard for obedience in these little matters means they were thought of as having a high standard in moral matters as well. They were seen as the people to aspire to, the ones with whom God was especially pleased. Yet when God walked into their world, they ended up in constant conflict with him. So, in verse 14 of, this, of chapter 11, we hear that when they hear of driving, uh, Jesus driving demons out, they declare he does it by the power of Satan. Uh, to call Jesus the devil reveals the depth of their spiritual blindness and opposition to God. This passage reveals that they have a problem with perception. That's the third heading. They have a problem with perception about their own righteousness before God, The episode opens with the Pharisee inviting Jesus to dinner. And as Jesus starts to enjoy the meal, a question of baptism and cleanliness is raised by the Pharisee, verses 37 to 38 in chapter 11. He's surprised to see Jesus did not follow the normal religious ritual of first washing his hands. The word washing here is the word baptize. It's not a hygiene matter that they're talking about here at all, but a religious action to symbolically wash the the, uh, the sinful dust, if you like, of the non-Jewish words, a world from your hands. That this dust would make you religiously unclean. Luke, uh, verse 38 in Luke notes that the Pharisee noticed Jesus did not baptise his hands. The Pharisee was astonished. His astonishment was visible. Jesus noticed it. And so in verse 39, Jesus uses the opportunity to discuss outward appearance and inward reality. Jesus says, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. This is not a polite discussion. It's a firm, harsh call to reality made by Jesus. The Pharisees' intense concern for outward appearances effectively covered up the inward reality of their hearts, even to themselves. Jesus highlights the inconsistency of cleaning the outside of a cup 
were with the inside being full of filth. And Jesus uses that picture of cleaning the outside of the cup as a metaphor for the person who cleaned it, the Pharisee. Polishing the very outside so that every speck of dust is gone. Dressing and behaving as if if you are as clean as God would want. Cleanliness is next to godliness, as the saying goes. Rubbish, says Jesus. Utter nonsense. Mr Pharisee. You can really be so, can you really be so blind? Jesus is not looking for a fight. However, he has already experienced strong opposition from the Pharisees, not once, but time and time again. Remember, these are the men who knew the scriptures and who made special effort to fulfill them to the finest degree. They were looking forward to the Messiah's coming. The problem is, when he comes, they call him the devil. Literally. Other occasions, the Pharisees plant people in the congregation to see if they can trap Jesus into breaking the law. They want to accuse him of blasphemy. The penalty is death. They are furious when Jesus heals a man with a shriveled hand and discuss what they might do with Jesus in response. We know where that led. So we're confronted then with a problem. How can they, the professional good people, not recognise God when he walks with them and talks with them? Jesus explains crushingly that theirs is a problem of false perception. That's the fourth heading. It's a problem of false perception. A false perception of him and a false perception of themselves. He highlights, Jesus highlights four examples of their desire for approval. They seek approval with God and they seek approval from one another. And because they can't evaluate and work out if I really have got approval with God, you really want to highlight, I'm making sure I get my uh, approval from my fellow Pharisees because they're the other good people. Therefore, if they think I'm good, I'm okay. In the passage, Jesus shows four examples of the way they seek approval from one another. First example is in the first part of verse 42. They tithe the mint and the rue of every herb. That is, they, they are so precise in the way they want to follow the law. Secondly, in verse 43, they love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings and in, in marketplaces. They love to be treated as if they're important, is what Jesus is saying, as if they're someone significant. Thirdly, verse 46 show that they make up new new laws and regulations that you won't find in the Bible and so load people with burdens hard to bear and the the Pharisees offer no help in helping them bring obedience to that new commandment. Verse 47, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, you build tombs for the prophets for whom your fathers killed. So God sent the prophets, the Pharisees killed them, and built the tombs for them. It looks good that they've built the tomb, I guess, but they've killed the prophets. Because the prophets didn't live quite the way Jesus, Pharisee, the Pharisees expected. Jesus exposes their hypocrisy and he shows in each one of their examples, disguises their rebellion against God. So in verse 42 again, while they tithe the mint and the rue and the herbs, they neglect justice and the love of God. That's not on their agenda. Justice and the love of... That's on God's agenda, though. 
And while they love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces, Jesus declares in reality they're like unmarked graves, full of death and decay. They love the recognition of their position, but in reality they're leading people to death because they're pointing people away from Jesus. They're not recognising the one whom God has sent. The Pharisees think that their hidden sins are no big deal because of their outward practices and appearances. So in verse 46, where they make lots of rules, they make no effort to help or care for people. They don't lift a finger to help in the observance of those rules. So in verses 48 to 51, Jesus points out, it's good to build that they build tombs for the prophets, yet they, yet they did not condemn those who killed the prophets, their own forefathers. By building the tombs, they declare that they want to honour the prophets as God's people, but at the same time, they, want, they, they, uh, they serve injustice by condemning the fathers who killed them. In verse 52, Jesus reaches the climax. Woe to you, scribes, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. What's the key of knowledge? Well, it's going to be the scriptures to give truth of God. You have taken that away. You did not enter yourselves, and you have hindered those who were entering. You've taken away the knowledge. You've taken away God's word. You've so distorted it that the people cannot see what God's word is saying and just end up instead with a system of rules that they can't keep. Consequently, the teachers do not enter the God's kingdom themselves and they prevent others from entering. Their judgment then will be severe. The point Jesus is making in these illustrations is that your sin matters. Your sin cannot be dealt with by making more rules. In fact, your rules have led you even to, into more sin. There is a different answer. But know this first, Mr Pharisee. Your sin matters. It matters more than you think. Your murdering of God's prophets, your lack of justice towards God's people, your lack of love towards God condemns you again and again and again. Face reality, get a true perception of your sin. None of us like it when we're challenged. Jesus has spoken to the Pharisees of the first century. Uh, what about us? We who live so much later. We excuse our sinfulness and so much seek the acceptance of others. We lie, we pretend, we deceive. We need to appreciate the sinfulness of our own hearts. Here we see that Jesus has spun a spotlight on them and their rebellion has been exposed. In verses 53 to 54, they are now lying in wait to catch him. They will not respond to his allegations. They will not consider them. Instead, they attack with savage questioning and then retreat, lying in wait, trying to find one of his words so they can condemn him at a suitable time. Well, through this passage, Jesus has not simply condemned them, but he calls on them to see themselves with true perception. That's the fifth heading. To grasp their sin and the seriousness of it, and to realise that extra rules and regulations are futile in dealing with the sinful heart. They are for you, they are for, was, was for them. Verses 38 to 41 uh, is a key paragraph here because it explains the problem the Pharisee had and Jesus' answer. 
And the rest of the passage that's there is really just largely illustration there. The Pharisee thought that cleanliness with God came about by obeying rules. He was astonished when Jesus did not follow those rules. Uh, your being right with God does not come about by obeying rules. Uh, you cannot do it that way. That's not the way to God. Uh, Jesus answered to us in verse 41. The verse requires a bit, a bit of work to understand, but it's worth the effort. The point Jesus is making is cleanliness of the heart is key. Jesus says, be but generous to the poor. That is, give as alms uh, to those that are seeking and everything will be clean for you. Uh, when he says give us alms, it's, he's, did you notice before he, he addressed their greed and hypocrisy? He's addressing that aspect of heart, the, the heart of greed that wants to keep stuff for yourself. So now Jesus says, give. Instead of, instead of holding into your, every, grabbing everything for yourself, give. That is the total change of heart is what he's calling for here. Instead of greed, I want to give. So uh, that's what he's calling, be generous to the poor, and, and then Jesus everything will be clean for you. You'll, you'll see how God sees as, uh, in, in that. Notice that Jesus picks up the need to be clean. That's what upset the Pharisee first because Jesus did not clean his hands religiously. Now Jesus highlights where true cleanliness is found or needed. To unpack this verse, we need to look at three parts of it. First of all, they cleanse the outside of the cup, but what really counts is on the inside. Look again at verse 39. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You religiously cleanse the outside, but inside, you're not paying attention to what's inside. It's full of greed and wickedness. Your good deeds make you look good, but inside, you're full of filth. The problem's not external appearance. The problem's heart. Cleansing the outside won't do anything for the heart. Inside, you're full of filth. What does it mean then to be generous here? To give to arms to the poor. This is what it uh, the problem with the Pharisees is that they have not been generous. That's not, them, that's not the way they live. Their life is marked with greed and wickedness. Jesus is calling on them to a totally different way of living. Give up being greedy. Give up. So instead, rather, be generous. We'd say, uh, put your desire to want more, put that desire to death. And isn't it hard? Isn't that what you and I are called upon to je by Jesus to do? You want, we want to keep living for self, but we're called upon to follow him and put self to death. I need to be living for Jesus. He's the one who owns me. We need to see things from, from the way God sees us. What does it mean for us? As followers of the Lord Jesus, we are to keep in step with the Spirit, not obey more rules. We are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds through the scriptures. We are called upon to die to self and to live for Christ. We are not our own. We've been purchased with a price. We are to live for him who died for us and who was raised again. The passage then calls on us then to have a true perception of sin and of self and of Jesus. That's the sixth heading there, the last one. In the first place, we need to see sin for what it is. Generally, this is hard for us. Why? Because sin is so much part of me. Even when we see it, we, want, we still want to keep excusing it. 
The Pharisees were expert in following the letter of the law, but they could not see that that missed the mark totally. They could not see their sin. Your sin was serious enough to take God's Son to the cross. Your sin was serious enough to do that. Dear friends, if your sin does not bother you, it should. If your sin does not bother you, you've not realised how serious your sin really is. If your sin does not bother you, ask God to open your eyes to see just how awful the enormity of your sin is. Until we realise the depth of our sin, we won't take it seriously and we won't see any need to put it to death. But that's hard because we've got living we got used to living with our problems, concerns and insecurities our way. We, when we, realize our, uh, we might realise our faults, but we've come to accept them and even excuse them. So we need to see that we have to do away with us to, to prove ourselves. We cannot do that. Whoops. We have to see that we have to do away uh, with them. Our anger, our selfishness, our pride, our gossiping, our resentfulness, our bitterness, our defensiveness... I've had to wrestle with issues of deceitfulness. I could get away with that growing up. But being married means I want to be open with my wife. I've had to wrestle with being lazy at work and developing self-control. I wrestle with issues of pride and I need humility. I see I've got these matters of deceitfulness, pride, laziness. I've got to see that they're serious enough that I've got to get rid of them. I find it's a constant, ongoing work. What do you need to get rid of in your life? You're glad I'm not asking you to give answers. <laughs> Some of us feel the overwhelming burden of sin, which dogs us and of which we are so deeply ashamed. And if that's you, you need to hear Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, said Paul. Bring your desire. I, I need the opposite treatment. I need to be told loudly with loud megaphones, your sin matters, because I keep pretending it's really not that significant. You don't notice it. I can put on a cover. Right? I need to have the loud megaphone. Some of us feel it very acutely and sharply. We are more sensitive. And I think to Paul is saying these words, here is a trustworthy saying, and you need to hold tightly to it when your hearts accuse you. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. It may help you to share your struggle with another Christian you can trust. But meanwhile, uh, dealing with sin is a struggle. True joy, though, is only found living God's way. We will be most happy when we delight in his ways. When we find in him all we need, he has made us for a relationship with himself, and so we will be most content as we experience that relationship with him to know his love for me in the midst of my sinfulness. Isn't that mind-boggling? To know his love for you 
in the midst of your sinfulness. That'll mean getting rid of uh, uh, my ways of seeing myself and instead learn to see myself his way. And God is the one who makes us clean. He is the one who deals with our sin through the death of his son and he puts his spirit within us and gives us that desire to put sin to death and to get rid of sin from our life. God does not wait for us to prove ourselves. We cannot. Instead, in his love and mercy, he does what we cannot do. He takes what's inside our cup, nails it to the cross, and we are clean. We have been cleaned to live for him, to give ourselves to him, to grow in him, to bring glory to him, and to let this world know what a great God he is and how worthy he is of our praise and honour. So let's pray. I'll lead us in prayer. Father, you have opened our eyes that we may see our sin and you have shown us that you have cleansed us from our filth. Father, please humble us that we may see our sin for what it is. Open our eyes that we may see and believe that true joy is only found in living your way. And so strengthen us that we may gladly get rid of our wickedness and sin. And Father, we cannot do this unless you give us your spirit and so we ask you, Holy Spirit, please keep doing your work in us. Thank you for giving us a true view of Jesus. Please help us to grow more and more like Christ, our treasure and our joy. And please use us to share with others the joy that you've given us in him. Amen.